This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been bringing you big ideas in small, concentrated doses from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we step outside of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss based on uh, interview clips from our archives chosen by our producers. Today, I am very, very happy to be here with James Glick. He is one of our most staggeringly great living science writers. He's the author of The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood. His first book, Chaos, was a National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize finalist and a national bestseller. His other books include the best-selling biographies, Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Feynman, and Isaac Newton, both shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, James's new book, Time Travel, A History, is an utterly fascinating journey through the history of an idea that has become part of the fabric of philosophy, science, and our daily lives, even though we can't really do it yet. Not really. Welcome to Think Again, James. Thank you, Jason. I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I wanted to start with a, a little anecdote, like walking here, walking a couple of days ago, toward Big Think reading your book, um, because I'm like one of the last ridiculous humans who walks down the street in a busy city reading a book. I nearly ran into a bus, and there was an advertisement on the side of the bus for a television show called Timeless, Protect the Past, Save the Future. So I thought, you know. Uh, that's just one of a whole <laughs> slew of television shows that are starting this fall on the theme of time travel. Really? Yes. Are we in a time travel renaissance? Uh, maybe we are. I didn't, I didn't think so, actually, when I started working on the book. In fact, I, there was a time when I thought, and this is a crazy idea, so I'm a little embarrassed to be admitting this. Okay. So you can edit it out. If, if, um, if you insist. I actually thought maybe time travel is coming to an end. Maybe the golden era of time travel uh, has run its course because we've imagined all of the things. Well, yeah. that turned out not to be true. And while I was working on the book, all this, there were some great time travel movies and Doctor Who continues to thrive. I don't think we'll ever tire of time travel, especially as like physics progresses, unless we get to a point where someone can definitively say to us, sorry, bub, that's never going to happen. You know? No, right. <laughs> well, I'm prepared to say that if okay. we, we want to just, you know, kill, yeah, let's put kill, it out kill, there. kill the bus right now. <laughs> but actually, I did just sort of contradict the premise of my book, because the, the whole point is that our excitement about exploring all the weird possibilities that time offers us has never been as lively as now. Right. And so I should be saying that it makes perfect sense that there are a whole bunch of 
new network TV shows about time travel. Can you identify any kind of like cultural trigger point why there might be a ton of shows right now about time travel? Is there something that happened recently or is this just the pendulum of media swinging? It's not just now. There was a, a time when that question was right on point. And unfortunately, that time was 1895 when H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine, which is kind of the beginning of the whole story. Right. So when you ask me that question, I want to. I know you're asking about now, and, I, and I'll get back to now, but when you talk about cultural trigger points, that's exactly what there was. I mean, at least that's exactly the question that I, that I wanted to try to answer. I mean, why? if no one had thought about time travel as an idea before, was it suddenly possible for H.G. Wells to create this powerful fantasy? And I, I should jump in here and say that your book makes the surprising but evidently very well-researched claim that indeed H.G. Wells essentially invented the idea of time travel, that it barely shows up before the book The Time Machine. Yeah, it was a surprise to me and I'm, and I'm still prepared to be defensive about it because because everyone's first reaction seems to be, wait, that can't possibly be true. What about, <laughs> what about the ancient Greeks? Didn't they, you know, at least think about the what future. about the future? Well, it's you know, it's a tricky question. Of course, you think about the future, and you have fortune tellers. That's there's hardly any cultural tradition that's older than that. Um, can you predict what's going to happen to me? Um, soothsayers and diviners right. and, and all of that. But most of the time you discover that people are wondering about their own future. Right. You know, you want to know, am I going to live a happy life? What they were not capable of, of asking was, how is the world going to be different for my grandchildren? What wonderful things will they experience and surround themselves with that don't exist in the present? So that brings us to techno technological advancement and also the concept of culture as a whole, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you have to have techno technological change accelerating to a kind of critical point where a person can look around the landscape and see trains whizzing by right. where there didn't used to be, where there used to just be farmland, and realize that this newfangled electric telegraph is really altering people's living habits. Right. And then you start to ask, well, gee, could things be different? What, and, and you ask, what marvels will the future bring? Right. And, and that's what happened. And so I explore the, the history of that a little bit. But now, I mean, because you asked. Yeah, yeah, about, about now. Now, well, now, yeah. Thing, now it's very different because we're so used to it. We're so familiar with it. We know all about time travel. We're kind of experts right. from, from the cradle. So it's interesting to me that people keep finding new variations. Yeah, I mean, even my eight-year-old son has come up with a essentially incomprehensible, but I've, I've probed it. I don't get it, but it's a paradox that he seems to think is coherent yeah. about time travel, where he's like, oh, if I went back in time, and then, but the best I can understand is that he thinks that time travel is some kind of virtual reality machine, where you're actually, it's just amassed all the data from everything that's ever happened, and so when you go back, you're creating new data, and then you're, it, it's a very crazy. Well, that sounds, he sounds very advanced. Theory. In indeed, I can't, I can't quite get to the bottom of, of what exactly the paradox yeah. is, but. But he's onto something there, yeah. and you're onto something, I think. And, and maybe this is part of the real answer to your question, which is 
We know that, that the technological change that we're experiencing is all bound up with virtualization, with networking, with cyberspace, with data transmission. Right. We experience different parts of the world virtually on our screens of, of all sizes, and more and more, this is also affecting our sense of time. We experience right. the past on the same screens that bring us the present. If we see a video of something in terrific high resolution, it may not be something that's happening now. It may be something that happened a very long time ago. Now, if it's 100 years ago, right. you can tell because it's grainy or black and white. Right. But more and more, there's a kind of confusion about time that I think has to do with data transmission. So I think your son's onto something <laughs> there. But, and it's also the case that science fiction writers are playing with that. And this becomes the end of my book. I didn't know while I was working on it what the end was going to be. I mean, I sort right. of, I'm always afraid that my books are just going to peter out. <laughs> but I was also aware that some weird things are happening in our culture to do with our understanding of time. And I don't understand them all. I don't think any of, any of us understand them. But to frame it just slightly differently, differently from looking at the past through screens, another thing that's happening is you get a text message and you get an email and you see a note on Twitter all from the same person and right. maybe you're meeting somebody and you have to check did the email come before the text message and you start thinking about the timestamps right. and you can get confused in daily life. I'm sure examples come to your mind. Yes. I'm sure they come to your eight-year-old's mind. <laughs> So what's interesting is, right, on the one hand, as I, as I listen to you talk about this, I'm thinking, okay, so that's creating a kind of ahistoricity, like the young people won't necessarily know when things are from because everything is present simultaneously, side by side. But at the same time, it seems advanced philosophically in terms of things that you talk about in your book, in terms of the idea that some philosophers, and I think even Einstein may have said, that time time becomes less of a significant force somehow. And it's a paradox. It's yet another of the time travel paradoxes that you're right. It's a kind of a historicity in the sense that everything gets muddled together and we're, all, we're just living in a very complicated extended present. Right. And what time a thing is from almost doesn't matter. And historical figures are living with us almost as vividly as the people we actually know. Right. And yet, Conversely, you could say that that's a kind of historical awareness that's more acute than ever, that, that in fact we are well connected with the past. Um, Thus we can get Hamilton the musical in hip-hop as that people can sort of relate, I mean, young people yeah. can connect to Alexander Hamilton in a meaningful way that they couldn't necessarily from history books. Yes, and, but not only that, you know, Alexander Hamilton has to be translated into <laughs> a somewhat fictionalized or staged version, or he has to be translated for us in a different way, but an equally artificial way by serious biographers. Uh, by the way, I don't mean to imply that Hamilton the music is not serious. It <laughs> right, is, right, right. but we don't get to see Hamilton. Right. right. We don't <laughs> actually know what he even looked like. I mean, I wrote a biography of Isaac Newton, and partway through it I realized nobody ha actually has any idea what Newton looked like. There are a few portraits, right. but if you line the portraits up, they look like different people because they really were 
lousy painters. So we have to imagine what he looked like. I mean, right. the, the truth is we're mostly imagining what George Washington looked like, even though we have, we probably th think we have a pretty vivid picture in our head. Right. It's, it's made up. But we know exactly what FDR looked like because we've got video. You know, you can Although arguably, going back to some other concepts in the book, that creates a kind of illusion of temporal continuity that, that isn't entirely accurate anyway because arguably every FDR at every moment of his life is somewhat of a different person. Well, that's true. That's a, that's a, that's a deep point. Um, but, you know, one way to look at our sense of history is to, is to recognize that different media have different time horizons. And we know about a certain segment of the past because the printed word is available to us. And right. then we know about a much more recent segment of the past because we've got live, we've got video. Right. You know, and it, it is different. But what I'm trying to say is yeah. that on the one hand, we're connected to the past in vivid, new, useful ways. And on the other hand, the past and the present are all muddled together. And right. we just feel we're in an unending present. And I think you're very right to say that we don't really know what it means. Like, and we certainly aren't in a position, I think, to make moral claims about it at this point, to say whether it's better or worse or whatever. Like, you know, one thing that's, that's always motivated me is my continuing sense of confusion or surprise that the past is so weirdly different from the present. And mm -hmm. a kind of historical fiction that I really don't like in books or in movies is a kind that makes me think you're writing about these people from the 16th century as though they were modern, as though they were thinking the same way we think. And actually, it's extremely difficult, almost impossible for us to put our, ourselves inside the heads of people who lived in the 16th century. For example, how could there be so many slave-holding abolitionists at the time of the revolution? You know, there were yeah. many people who were like actively fighting against slavery while owning slaves. To put it to put it in a political or moral way, that's <laughs> that's true. Uh, it, I mean, it creates sort of ethical tangles for you if you start to think to yourself, "Am I supposed to forgive them because it was a different time?" And and you do forgive them. I mean. People you admire living in the past say the most atrocious things about, <laughs> about women, and yet you recognize that it was a different time. But, sure. that's, but that's not all I'm saying. Okay. I'm also right. saying, if I'm trying to write about Isaac Newton and what he was thinking about gravity, can I subtract from the picture everything that we know about gravity? I mean, we have a kind of intuition about gravity. We can feel it all around us. Hold out your arm, and and it's right. and there's this yep. invisible force that's pulling it downward. And how can we imagine a mental picture of the world from which that is subtracted? Because that's what Newton had. Newton, you look up the word gravity in historical dictionaries, and you realize that before Newton started calling it using the word for the thing we're talking about, right. it meant it was a state of mind. You know, gravity was the opposite of levity. It, it just meant <laughs> taking things seriously. Right. But if you want to write about the history of science, as, as I've tried to do, you really need to be able to put yourself imaginatively in this weird mindset. Right, right, which is hard. One, before we get on to the surprise conversations, there was one other, I want to go back to time travel for God, a second. I thought this was the surprise conversation. <laughs> no? um, well, the surprise conversations are sparked by video clips of interviews from Big Things Archives that we don't know what they're about. So, okay. Okay. Oh, so even you don't know? No. 
Oh. I have no idea. So um, they get emailed to me and I don't look honest. Right. But the last thing I want to say about time travel before we get there is my problem with time travel, my personal problem with time mm. travel, is that it presupposes that the past exists mm -hmm. in some way still. Right. You know, like that's the idea that just really bugs me. Like everyone assumes that, you, or everyone who takes the idea of time travel seriously is assuming that there is a, these things are some when. Right. Yeah. And you want me to help you with that well, problem. Well, no, but I guess, I guess, like, why isn't that a bigger problem in the discussion of time travel? Why don't well, more people seem to have an issue with that? Or maybe they do. Um, I almost hate to reveal this. The f what is this I'm a spoiler what I'm about to I guess this is a sort of spoiler, but I'm just going to say, I mean, I th think you're completely right. You're obviously <laughs> right. And time travel is impossible. And that's essentially why. But that's okay. I mean, that's, now I want to say that's all right, because we, we know all along that time travel is just a fantasy. H.G. Wells knew that he was making stuff up. Sure. I mean, he just wanted to tell a fun story and accidentally in the course of justifying to making the story plausible, he came up with a theory of time as a fourth dimension that Einstein also came up with 10 years later. Right. You're exactly right. Time travel presupposes that the past is still somehow there as opposed to gone. And even worse, it presupposes that the future is already an existing place. Yeah. And that is contrary to our most basic human intuition about time, which I will summarize this way. The past is over, <laughs> it happened, it's gone. Right. And we have no longer have access to it. And the future has not yet happened. Some physicists will tell you that, yeah, you feel that way, but that's just a human intuition. And human intuition has again and again through history proved to be unreliable. And until Newton explained gravity to us, we thought that up was up and down was down. And now we're perfectly comfortable with the fact that people in outer space have no particular, no preferred orientation with regard to verticality, <laughs> right. you know, that, it's a, that it's a consequence of gravity. And maybe our sense of the past and the future is artificial in that same way. Now, if you ask me what I personally believe, I believe those physicists are taking their models too seriously, that this idea of the block universe in which the past and the future look, according to the equations of physics, to be the same is a very useful mathematical construct, incredibly useful. It's right. enabled physics to create the marvels that surround us, but it's just a model of the world. And we don't have to say that it tells us definitively that the future already exists. We are still allowed, speaking philosophically, to imagine that the future is open. And you're right, that undermines the premise of most time travel. But isn't that all right? I mean, it's a story. It's oh, a kind I think of it's story. Fine, so long as we accept, yeah, yeah. So and we... and so th you, then it frees you to ask, what's this story telling us about the world we really live in? Right. You're going to organize a particular kind of time travel story, in which your hero keeps getting killed, and each time he gets killed, he starts over, or she. I'm thinking of two different versions of this kind of story. What's that a metaphor for? 
why did the artist choose to express this particular kind of sure. weird universe? Sure. What does it tell us about the universe we really do live in? And the artist and the culture and the time and so yeah. on. Yeah. Okay, well, this has been so fascinating that I've used up a ton of our time, but I, we, may, we, may end up, we may end up having only two surprise conversations rather than three, but let's see. So this is Pendulette on prayer and the atheist. So let's see where that takes us. I very rarely look in this kind of proximity when I'm not sexting. Um, if you want to know how to be a good leader, watch Donald Trump and don't do that. I realized recently I do something very close to prayer. And I don't want to show any disrespect to people by using the word prayer. But I also want to make a little bit of an argument. Sam Harris makes his argument for atheist meditation. I want to make a little bit of an argument for atheist prayer. I do something before I go to sleep at night called Penn's Guilt Roundup. And Penn's Guilt Roundup is I go through uh, conversations that I've had, like tonight, before I go to bed, I'll think, should I really have made that sexting joke when I was at the Big Think? Should I really have done that? And I'll run through how I could have done that better. I also try to think of um, what I want and how I can get there. Now, I'm very fortunate because when I go to my desires, they're, they're not very often material, material desires because my family's well cared for. But I think about, uh, I used to think about my weight. I would pray to be able to uh, control the wants of my diet. And I do believe with God, there's a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not referring to baptism there. I'm referring to, uh, uh, I'm referring to the fact that so much of the social and personal elements of religion are really good. I would say maybe more than good, maybe very close to necessary. Do you feel that, that science is better off for having largely thrown off religion? Do you feel that it has like advanced faster? Do you feel that those scientists were hamstrung in some way by the, by the frameworks through which they were viewing the world? Or as we were just talking about just now, do you think that maybe some of these new theoretical models that they invent are becoming a new kind of metaphysics or a new religious worldview that is... is All right. That's, uh, I was going to go a whole different way. We could go any no, way you want. No, yeah. that's, inter that's interesting. Um, I'm an atheist myself. A lot of scientists are atheists, but some scientists are not atheists. Newton, of course, was profoundly religious. He couldn't, the idea of a universe without God, it just wouldn't have occurred to him. You're asking if science is better off for having thrown off ideas of Thrown religion. off is a charged phrase, but yeah, it for, is. for having and maybe not having them embedded in it. Anyway. There is, it would be silly for me to deny that there's a sort of conflict between science and religion because there is. Scientists characteristically view the world in a way that is, let's say, more open, more waiting for evidence, more provisional than religion does, at least as I understand religion. And I don't want to pretend to be any sort of expert on it. You know, some of my best friends believe in God. Right. And I don't think they are any less intelligent, far from it, 
or even any less correct about the world than I am. And so to be intellectually honest, I have to ask myself what that means. And I think, I think that's what Penn was doing when he was talking about prayer. He was asking, how can I make sense of these ideas that are so much a part of our culture even today? So for me, a thing to say about God is to try to understand what it means to people in a more sophisticated way than just, you know, guy with a beard and white hand and white hair, with <laughs> a beard and white hair who um, knows everything that's going to happen or is in charge of things or created the universe or, you know. Right. There's obviously more to it than that. Just as Penn is saying, there's more to the idea of prayer than sending a message to some powerful being who's going to give you what you want. Sure. That's not what serious people think prayer is. And I think Penn is right to try to understand a, a more expansive view of what is meant by the idea of prayer. When I talk to my friends who are as intelligent or more intelligent than I, who have a kind of religious faith, right. I endeavor to understand what Sure. how to make sense of, of what that means. And I, I do think I have some understanding of it, and I, and I want to say this about it, that there's a different kind of dichotomy, both in religion and in science, that has to do with how we know things and how we know what we know, what we believe about the process of arriving at knowledge. Okay, which is there formally are, called in philosophy... Is that epistemology? Maybe I don't yeah, even okay, want to. Right, I don't okay. even want to pretend right. to know what the philosophers <laughs> call it. What <laughs> I want to, what I want to get at is, I'll say, simplistically, you know, there are two kinds of scientists. There are scientists who are always in a state of doubt, who consider the normal thing is just to not know things. And right. I mean, this is I'm thinking of Richard Feynman here. He was eager to say that the universe is a mystery and that most of it is never going to be understood by us humans and that all we can hope for is little glimmers of insight here and there. Right. And I believe that there are people in the realm of religion who have the same attitude, who have the same view of faith, Right. who when they speak of faith, they're not saying I know this, this, and this about the origins of the universe. I know that there was a flood, and I know that God did this and that. They are talking about faith as a twin of doubt, that faith right. does not mean certainty. It means I am believing a certain thing while not claiming absolute certainty about it. I am trying to come to grips with my sense that what we see and touch in the universe is not all there is. Right. And both scientists and people of religion do that, and they do it honorably. And there are people in both realms who I think do it less honorably, or at least I should maybe I'll say less to my taste. Gotcha. There are scientists who are very confident in what they tell you about the laws of physics and what they know about things that I consider religious questions. If a scientist tells you that he knows how the universe started right. or how the universe is going to end, I tend to think they're overstepping their bounds. And in exactly the way that fundamentalist religious people overstep their bounds when they tell you that wisdom has been handed to us in a certain book. Right. And 
it must not be questioned. So faith then in the sense of more to your taste, and I will say more to my taste sense of it, is uh, you know faith that's oriented, that's around uncertainty, but I guess hopefulness in a sense. But anyone who's doing anything really, really interesting in the world, it seems that there's some motive, even if they wouldn't articulate it as faith, that there's some kind of belief that there's a reason to move in the direction that they're, they're going and not to just stop doing that, right? Isn't, isn't it possible to argue something different, that we're just, you know, sort of sad creatures who do what we do for reasons that are not accessible to us? And yes, I'm, <laughs> when I write my next book, it will be with a sense of purpose and a, a kind of implicit belief that there's some value to it. and. Who knows what my hidden motivations will be? <laughs> but maybe it's also possible that I'm just doing it because... It's a thing to do. <laughs> it's a thing to do, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I think on that note, <laughs> before we dissolve yeah. into an existential on that, soup... On that deflating note. <laughs> let it, let's, see what the next, uh, let's see what the next one is. This is David Eagleman, neuroscientist, and it's called Your Time-Bending Brain. So this is an area of interest to me, and my lab's been studying this for a while, is, is, is why time is rubbery and can speed up or slow down. And the experiment had never been done about uh, why time seems to move in slow motion when you're in a, a life-threatening situation. But I'd talked to so many people, and I'd experienced it myself, um, that I wanted to study that. So I, I found a way to study it by, by dropping people from a 150-foot tall tower and measuring their time perception on the way down. And that, plus several other experiments we did in my lab, uh, led me to understand that people don't actually see time in slow motion during an event. Instead, it's a completely retrospective assessment. In other words, when you're in a life-threatening situation, your brain writes down memory much more densely. And then retrospectively, when you look at that, you have so many details that you don't normally have that it seems as though it must have lasted a very long time. That's the only interpretation your brain can make. So time, your assessment of how long something took, has a lot to do with how much energy your brain has to burn during the event and how much footage you have of the event. Okay, a thing that, that everybody knows about time is that our perception of it varies. The observation that sometimes time passes quickly and sometimes time passes slowly for us right. is one of the oldest of human observations and and people have known it certainly Shakespeare knew it and people you know it's we know that time flies when you're having fun right you know, we also know in a slightly more sophisticated way that music as an art form is capable of wreaking havoc with your sense of time, with your perception of time. That's one of the games that music plays, is creating a sense of fast motion and slow motion by playing with, as David Eagleman is saying there, with information flow. I mean, I think he's, I think that's a smart way to think about it, that a, a way for a psychologist to explore the perception of time is to think in terms of, of how information is processed and stored in our brain. Right. Fine. For my narrow purposes in my time travel book, I decided I actually wasn't that interested in the perception of time because that part of it seemed a little obvious to me. I mean, another thing that, that, that we all know is that 
that the years seem to pass a lot more quickly as we get older. Sure. You know, when you're six years old, a month is a lifetime, and when you're 70 years old, a month can goes by really tragically quickly. Um, Interestingly, also, um, it seems like that time passes more quickly in retrospect. I remember when we first had our son, everyone coming along to us and saying, oh, it goes so fast, you know, he's uh-huh. going to grow up With before the, in you that know. exact accent? In a kind of. <laughs> and then there were, you know, year, months and years where we were like, eh, it's not going so fast. It doesn't feel like it's going all that fast, you know? I mean, but they're yeah. looking back on it, you know, at a vantage point of 25 years later or whatever. Yeah. And all of this, so, so, so there are a lot of things like that but not that, are, that interesting to you in that your are, book. That, I'm not saying they're not interesting, that we kind of know, and I think it's, it's, it's good that there are people who explore these things and try to understand them better. Right. But, but felt like a kind of side issue for me, yet obviously related, because what my book is, is most fundamentally about right. is our understanding of time. And that's a complicated thing, very complicated thing, that has, has changed dramatically during the last century. And I guess my point and is that this all f- does feed into time travel storytelling because we're learning new things all the time about the way time passes and the way sure. time flows. And, and we were therefore forced to think about what that sentence I just said means. Does time pass? Does time flow? You know, I mean, we, we're not even getting into the m- much more complicated question which obviously this underscores of like what is time at all and how slippery that concept is and how aware of that we all are on some level. I actually knew that I was going to have to deal with that question in the book and I won't pretend that I actually answer the question but I hope I shed some light because I felt that that was the time travel story trying to shed light on that question. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, we have a concept of moving across something that we don't even have really the faintest real idea of what it is. That's that's pretty complicated. And whatever you say, you immediately know it's wrong. If we're moving moving across it, or is it moving through us, or is it moving with us, or are we floating in it? Is time a river? It It would actually be really interesting to simply interview a random sampling of 500 people and ask them the question, what is time? Yeah. And hear what they say. Or you could look in the Oxford English Dictionary and, and read the you know 10,000 words <laughs> they devote to trying to answer that question. Sure. James Glick, um, thank you so much for being on Think Again. This has been a fun and, as, as I promised in the beginning, divergent conversation. All right. Thank you. All it right. was fun for me, too. Thanks very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. For those of you who are out there and listening to the show and enjoying what you're hearing and finding it intellectually stimulating or you have responses that you don't think we addressed or whatever, I'd love to hear from you. We're Big Think Again, one word, on Twitter. And I'm pretty active on there. I'm the one that runs the Twitter account. So if you shoot me a message there, unless it's extremely nasty, I will definitely respond to you. I also want to urge everybody, if you haven't done so already, and probably that's the minority among our audience, but to register to vote. I am not crazy about talking politics, but this year I don't think anyone in America can escape it. The stakes are very, very high. 
as far as I'm concerned in this election. And um, I'm not the only one who thinks so. Uh, just go back and listen to our episode with Princeton historian Sean Willens. I hope you will register to vote and go out and vote in this election. And next week we have a very, very special guest for you, which I am going to keep under wraps until then. Hope to see you then. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big